I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Jesse Randall, is curator of special collections at Colorado College and is the author of several poetry collections, including Suicide Hotline Hold Music, which includes her own accompanying comics, There Was an Old Woman, Injecting Dreams into Cows, and A Day in Boyland, which was a finalist for the Colorado Book Award. She has also written a young adult novel, The Wandora Unit, about poetry nerds in high school, and a collection of collaborative poems, Interruptions, written with Daniel M. Shapiro. Randall's poems have been hung from trees, made into rock songs by garage bands, used in library advertisements, and sold in gumball machines. Here's a description by Kate Northrup of Jesse's Poetry and Style. Were I a doctor, I'd prescribe Jesse Randall, specifically a poem a day, although I know the poem will not stay put in its presentation. It'll gurgle, thinking about growing fur. It'll unvelcro itself, step out of itself and morph into many brilliances, into many heavens and grains of sand. No, it'll morph into a thousand glowing, hugely glowing melon spoons. Thank you, Jesse Randall. So, Jesse, welcome to Delving In. Well, thank you, Stuart. I'm so happy to be here, and it was fun to hear those those old descriptions of myself that I'd kind of forgotten about. Yeah, Kate, Kate was a that was a fun one. So, your most recent book, Mathematics for Ladies: Poems on Women in Science, uh, is a really delightful read. It's it's uh, not long, but it's it contains poems about well, I don't know ninety, a hundred. About that, eighty, I think. 80 different women scientists, many of whom had to break through incredible barriers to do what they did. This is only my second uh, interview of a poet, the, the other one being a poet about volcanoes. So, so this is like a different kind of volcano. It's a, it's a, it has to be a volcano of ambition, drive, and perseverance, and the willingness to overcome any obstacle. There, As you said, there are 80-some poems in there, another 80-some that that didn't make it into the book. So there are way more women uh, historically in, in STEM fields than you would ever have guessed, I think. Many, many, many of whom didn't get the sufficient recognition right. that they deserved. So right. how did you conceive of the idea of this book? I was always interested in women in science in that when I was a kid, I I was a huge fan of Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman doctor, or the rather I should say, the first woman to earn a medical degree in the United States and England, or so I thought, that can get more complicated, I've now learned, but I would always do a report on her, you know, if in sixth grade I was assigned, that sort of thing. And then, only in retrospect did I realize that this had been a lifelong interest. I thought it was a new interest when I attended a talk at Colorado College, where I'm a librarian, by a physics professor Barbara Witten, who was talking about an astronomer named Sarah Frances Whiting. So this was one of these things where you get a free lunch and sit around with faculty and staff and learn something. And Dr. Witten showed these amazing pictures of, of blurry blobs that were in fact stars and talked about the work these women did cataloging stars, not just Sarah Frances Whiting, but also Annie Jump Cannon and several others. And the name Annie Jump Cannon just seemed like I I wrote that down and, and then looked into her some more. 
And gosh, then it was about 2016, and I felt like I really wanted to do something, anything, for women's history. It wasn't as though I could change what was happening in the world, but I could do some some small thing that um, supported women, and and that was that became this project to look at historical women in STEM. And, and your own interest in STEM fields does that go back a, a ways? Well, there was Elizabeth Blackwell, that that early hero of mine, but I am not a science a scientist myself. I, I'm a librarian. Of course, we do call library science a science, though I I think that you know to my mind that is a misnomer, and and maybe we should call it something like library service or library studies. I have done science in only the most high schoolish of levels, but I know many scientists. And clearly you have an appreciation for science. There's so much, there's so many metaphors sitting right there in, in the science that fold right over into into poetry and literature. And I remember reading a book in college by C.P. Snow called The Two Cultures, in which Snow argued that we should stop thinking of science and humanities as these very separated things. That had never occurred to me. I'd always thought science is over there. I am over here with the with the book people. Uh, but this was eye-opening, the idea that maybe maybe there's more science in the arts and more arts in the science than I had known. Yeah, I, I would second that motion. <laughs> so I was amazed to uh, learn from your book that the term scientist was coined in order to call a woman a scientist because before that it was men of science, right? That's right. So the first scientist was a woman because before that, people who worked in natural history, natural philosophy, were called men of science or sometimes natural philosophers. But yes, a, a male reporter, somebody writing an article about Mary Somerville uh, coined the word scientist. And that's, I, I want to say, late 16th, 17th century, something like that. Yeah, pretty cool. So rather rather than the awkward uh, people of science or woman, woman of science, they just... And, and the term, and this is one of the times when the term, in order to call a woman that, became the generic term too. Yes, yes, for once. We don't have poetess and actress and scientess. That would have been awful. Yeah, yeah. Mary Somerville's born 1780, so it's the early 1800s that we get the term scientist. So we agreed before we started that we're going to take turns reading, or actually what we'll do is we're going to read a poem, talk about the person, and then read it again. So I, I think what's going to make sense is I'll read it first, and then you talk about it, and then when you're ready, you can just read the poem again. So, so, so starting on page three, I don't know that I'm pronouncing her name right, but it's Maria Sibylla Marion. Mm -hmm. Maria Sibylla Marion collected caterpillars, hundreds and hundreds of caterpillars. She learned art just so she could draw them. Not butterflies, not interested. She drew her caterpillars from life, never pinning them to a board. It did not occur to her to kill them, to hold them still. They stayed still in her mind, where it mattered. For 20 years, she butterflied herself, like a shrimp, like a fillet, into a marriage with Johann Graf. But being an expert in wonderful metamorphosis and special nourishment of caterpillars, 
the title of her first book, she decided to leave him and to take back her maiden name, Caterpillar First and Last, A Double Metamorphosis. Yes, Maria Sibylla Marion, born 1647, died 1717. She's what we would call a natural philosopher in that period, because we don't have the word scientist yet. And of course, many of the of the women in my book, they come to science by uh, drawing, do, doing botanical drawings or animal drawings, fossils, things like that. Because of course, drawing was something women were trained to do in America and Europe, which is where most of these these women are. So if I remember right, the reason I, I wanted to include Marion in the book was this business about not pinning the caterpillars to the board, that every everybody else was doing their drawings that way and the and the caterpillar would sort of be floating in this blank space of a piece of paper. But she was drawing them on branches and eating leaves and doing their caterpillar kind of things, which is one of those moments where you go, if only women had been part of the scientific community in equal in equal measure to men, maybe there would be other kinds of things that, that we would have done differently and, and better maybe and, and grown. Science could have moved faster, accomplished more. This is one of those times when you have a a woman's scientific work making this lovely metaphor with her life. This business where women it's it's sometimes hard to track you know the family connections because of women lo- leaving their names behind when they marry. Women who are working in STEM fields are often marrying men who work in those same fields. And so their work uh, the women's work gets submerged under the man's name very often because they have the same last name. Uh, so you end up with just hearing about the Agassiz work or whatever. So yes, in this case, she goes back to her own name. She didn't really, she didn't care about butterflies. The caterpillar was where her interest was. And I like that. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful implication at the end that she's not going to value the butterfly over the caterpillar just less you shouldn't value a man over a woman. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't value a married, a married woman doesn't become a butterfly from her old caterpillar self. You know, this isn't sort of the fulfillment of her fate. This is um, something she, she can metamorphosize right back again. So let's, let's hear it again. Oh, that's right. Maria Sibylla Marion, 1647 to 1717. Maria Sibylla Marion collected caterpillars, hundreds and hundreds of caterpillars. She learned art just so she could draw them. Not butterflies, not interested. She drew her caterpillars from life, never pinning them to a board. It didn't occur to her to kill them, to hold them still. They stayed still in her mind where it mattered. For twenty years she butterflied herself, like a shrimp, like a fillet, into a marriage with Johann Graf. But being an expert in wonderful metamorphosis and special nourishment of caterpillars, the title of her first book, she decided to leave him and to take back her maiden name, Caterpillar First and Last, a Double Metamorphosis. Wonderful. 
Well, let's continue on with the very next page. We're not going to get through the whole book. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one is Emily du Chatelet. Uh, if it sounds French, it's because she was French. I'm pregnant again, trying to finish my book. To save time, I stopped lifting the pen between words. I'm up until five in the morning. I keep awake by plunging my arms into icy water. I have only a few months left. Emily du Chatelet, born 1706, dies 1749. There's a wonderful book about her, A pa Passionate Minds. About her, it's about her life, but also about her relationship with Voltaire. And I highly recommend it. And I don't know why it hasn't been made into a movie. And she was lovers with Voltaire, right? Yes, indeed. On and off, kind of a, a long relationship. Uh, but I believe she's, if I remember right, she's married to someone else. But you know the French. Ha ha. Anyway. So it's, you know, it's the 18th century. And she's she's highly educated. She's brilliant. She's uh, doing all kinds of interesting scientific work, writing books. But she's also a married woman. And having a child is a dangerous operation. She knows she may not survive childbirth, and indeed, she does not uh, at the time in which this poem is taking place, in, in my own mind. Uh, and so she really is, can you imagine, I mean, if you care, caring that much about your scientific work, that you, that you stop lifting your pen between words because it's so important to you to get those those words down on the page. Um, of course, that would waste some ink and you have to dip your pen into the ink. So that might add some time. She may not have actually say, I don't know, but but just the idea of that fervor, you know, you you probably know that Sylvia Plath was getting up at, you know, 4 a.m. in order to write poems at, at toward the end of her, of her life so that she could have some time without caring for the children. It's that same kind of just intensity of of needing to to finish the work so many of these women are causing their bodies harm in order to do science so there's a woman in the book who makes herself ill in various ways like rolling around in um poison ivy for example because the doctor's office is near the natural history museum and every time her mother takes her to the doctor she gets to go to the museum so in the same kind of way emily du chatelet is is plunging her arms into ice water to keep herself awake and and not sleep not waste time with with sleeping so that she can work on on her scientific endeavors and she's and she's right that she's not going to live um to be able to to finish as much as she wanted to. Yeah, one, uh, I'll call it an undercurrent rather than a theme, is that a lot of the women in your book came from aristocratic backgrounds, very highly, highly privileged backgrounds. Yes. I don't want to call them necessarily privileged people because trying to make it in science, you know, as a woman, it was not exactly privileged. But uh, in many cases, the father was not sexist and taught either taught or encouraged in most cases, in most of the cases, there were a few, some exceptions where, where the woman had to uh, go against her parents' wishes. Mm -hmm. There are definitely allies, male allies in the book, many of them, you know, this term that's become 
more and more in use recently intersectional feminism is when we we look at people's various privilege and lack of privilege and these things can be happening at the same time so yes the the women who who were able to be to do stem work you know before the um I would say as late as let's say mid 20th century or even later even today one could argue they almost always have have money and or social status of some kind because otherwise they they wouldn't get the education um that they needed in order for I guess we should I should back up and say I'm sure there are many women doing science work that we will never know about because it wasn't published, it wasn't written down. A lot of the women in my book only barely by the skin of their teeth get one paper published by hook or by crook, you know, often often with the help of... of um... No, in Emily du Chatelet's case, she was the translator of Newton's Principia Mathematica, which was, you know, the his probably greatest work. And it became, it's still the definitive translation into French, and it became the basis for translations into other languages, too. So it's really big stuff. Yes. You have to understand it to be able to translate it. Yes. And the first edition of that translation doesn't have her name attached to it. That only happens later, because, of course, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to take away from the from the work by putting a woman's name on, on the title page. And just to give an indication of how um, cultured she was and, and, and what kind of opportunity she had, she was trained in fencing and riding. By the age of 12, she was fluent in Latin, Italian, Greek, and German. She liked to dance. She was a passable performer on harpsichord, sang opera, was an amateur actress. <laughs> yes, I mean, she's amazing. And if your listeners want to know more about her, I highly recommend. Uh, the book is called Passionate Minds, The Great Enlightenment Love Affair. The author is David Bodanis, and it's uh, it's Emily Duchatelet and Voltaire. Right, here's my, my, uh, my favorite one. She used her mathematical skills to devise highly successful strategies for gambling. <laughs> there, there's another woman in the book who whose physics work looks a lot like multiple pool tables in four dimensions i i don't i couldn't describe it to you. i don't really understand it but the idea of like when you hit hit the cue ball and all the balls go off in in three dimensions and if you're looking at it from the fourth how that works physics wise uh, across vast spaces and, somehow and then she died at 42 from complications of childbirth yes yeah. Your poem makes it sound like she was still writing even as she was dying. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, she, I mean, right up till she went into labor. Oh, okay. Not, not after. No, no. I don't know. Actually, there is, there, there is a story uh, that didn't make it into the book. A woman I know who, who knew a, a woman scientist who I think died just recently. I won't give the details, but basically, this woman was doing her science work in the hospital with, baby you know nursing at the same time was was working on her her lab reports and things <laughs> well, let's uh, let's hear the poem one more time then we're going to take the station uh, announcement emily du chatelet 1706 to 1749 i'm pregnant again trying to finish my book to save time i stopped lifting the pen between words 
I'm up until five in the morning. I keep awake by plunging my arms into icy water. I have only a few months left. Let's go now to James Miranda Barry. I mean, so talk about something that would be uh, cinematic. This one's really amazing. Yes, James Miranda Barry is such an interesting character, and I, I would love for there to be a movie someday, a book that just came out this year or last called The Cape Doctor, which is about him. Now, I'll talk a little bit about this person before before we read the poem. James Miranda Barry was born Margaret Ann Bulkley and was what we would now call assigned female at birth. This is circa 1789 that Barry is born. And it's it's hard to know how Barry thought about these things, but I tend to use the he him kinds of pronouns for Barry because he lived his life as a man starting around age 12 or 14 and only after he died did anyone find out uh, that that he had been assigned female at birth do you want to read it first sure things would be so much easier if i had a husband the cufflinks do me in every time had i a husband or a wife a wife dressing like a man each morning would be less of a chore with a wife on my arm, I might not get called a sissy. Or if a husband, we'd be two fellows about town, smoking and telling crude jokes. The secret of me, I'll keep it till death. I'll try to keep it even longer, with careful instructions. But words will fail me, and I'll be found out. So James Miranda Berry, we don't know for sure, but he may have been, when he was quite young, he, he may have gotten pregnant and and given birth to a child and then fairly soon after that he um, takes on a male persona male name dresses like a man and joins the army and then the army uh, sends him off to medical training and he becomes a medical doctor and <laughs> he becomes a, a, an army doctor uh, and apparently a very very good one uh, in fact, he's one of the few people who was able to successfully perform a cesarean section uh, early in in European history. Right, successful in, in that both the baby and the mother survived. Everybody lives. Yeah, everybody lived. Uh, now, I may be getting some of these details wrong because it's it's been a few years now since I've researched these folks. But uh, if you read The Cape Doctor fairly new, fairly recent novel. You can find out a lot more about him. One of my favorite things, we were we were talking earlier about allies to these to the people in the book. The novel I mentioned was is The Cape Doctor by E. J. Levy, and it came out in two thousand twenty one. So after Barry dies and even though he's instructed that no one is to handle his body other than his I think maybe he has a sort of manservant kind of person in his life but these rules aren't followed to the letter and the story comes out and the men that worked with him when he was a doctor in the army across the board say who cares we don't he was an amazing doctor they say they they're not they're not sort of um, scandalized and shocked and horrified and any of that they're they're really quite shrug they shrug it off and say what mattered is this he was a terrific doctor he saved a lot of lives early in in his career 
they thought he was too young to be admitted to the army because because he was you know smooth faith. <laughs> he didn't have a beard. <laughs> he 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 was so young. He was just a child. Well, in fact, he you know he 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 that wasn't the issue. So I think that there were suspicions because uh, his physique wasn't uh, all that androgynous, really. Yes, there were rumors. He also may have had a relationship uh, with a man who. You know, there are different ways one could interpret this or imagine it, but it could be that that a lot of people knew, um, or that at least his special partner knew. But those things are not known; they they weren't written down. Uh, I I like to imagine that he had quite a happy life. There are a couple of portraits of him that you can find if you Google his name, and in one of them he looks. He very much looks like a, a young boy or or possibly a girl, just almost looks silly in his army uniform. And then in another one, he just he looks like every other portrait of any army general. So I, I have many questions. There's a lot of ambiguity around this this person, and that of course is what makes for a, an interesting poem. I think. Right. Okay. So let's hear it again. James Miranda Berry, born 1789, circa. Born circa 1789, died 1865. Things would be so much easier if I had a husband. The cufflinks do me in every time. Had I a husband or a wife, a wife, dressing like a man each morning would be less of a chore. With a wife on my arm, I might not get called a sissy. Or if a husband, we'd be two fellows about town, smoking and telling crude jokes. The secret of me, I'll keep it till death. I'll try to keep it even longer, with careful instructions. But words will fail me, and I'll be found out. Yes, the so another possibility, it seemed to me, was that maybe, what if James Miranda Berry was a woman who liked women, and posing as a man might have allowed him to have romances with women? I just, I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of questions. Probably one of the earliest well-documented instances of transgender, I would think. I hesitate to speak to that. I think there's quite a lot of cross-dressing that happens way, way back that we might not recognize as such. Uh, But yes, this sort of success, you know, there may be, you know what, to me, one of the amazing things that Barry's story opens up is the possibility that there were lots and lots of women doing all kinds of amazing things who didn't get discovered. Hard to know. This is sort of like the British Mulan, right? The uh, British army instead of the Chinese. (laughs) I mean, you got to figure that that with so few opportunities for for women that uh, it makes so much sense that they might have gone into disguise um, but and that we would might never know okay so moving on to page 16 <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Blackwell oh my favorite the first uh, woman physician I, I love the story that she was accepted after applying everywhere to medical school and being rejected just about everywhere she was accepted on a lark and one story is that it was a joke that she was accepted and it's to Geneva Medical College in, in upstate New York the boys thought it was hilarious. Right. But the, the, the faculty or whoever is supposed to do the admission process couldn't make a decision, which is interesting. Yep. 
They put it to the student body. Right. They felt some conflict about it. So they put it to the student body. And she was. it had to be a unanimous vote for her to be admitted. And it was unanimous. And they did it. it it's The whole thing is so improbable. And yet, and yet it happened. So, yeah, at um, what is now Hobart and William Smith, and there's now a big, a beautiful statue of Elizabeth Blackwell there. But at the time, it was not a very respected uh, medical college, particularly. It was kind of on low on, on the list of reputable places to get your degree. And the young men who were there, I mean, it was just such a hoot to them to say yes to this woman applicant. I would guess that the administration had not expected that. I, I think they probably wanted to to pass off the a decision not to let her in by saying, well, our students don't want you here. But then they did want her there, but then once she was there, they didn't want her there. They didn't allow her into lab, they teased her, they ostracized her. Then they teased her and they pranked her and they were awful. They played tricks on her with corpses, awful. But by the time she graduates, they are very much uh, her supporters. I've read I think every biography of Elizabeth Blackwell that has been published, and most of them are for kids, and so you have to, you know, you have to read them with some skepticism. But this story is the same every time, and the primary source material supports it. There's a newspaper article from Geneva, New York, uh, from the time talking about this business when she graduates and the men throw their hats in the air and cheer for her and. There's a new book about her and her sister. Um, uh, her sister's name is Emily Blackwell, and they both they both are become doctors. And uh, in that book, it becomes clear that Elizabeth Blackwell considered her work not so much being a doctor, but being the gateway, the person who opens the door for other women to become doctors. You know, she earned their respect and was the first in her class, you know, so she really was quite, uh, quite adept and quite uh, accomplished, uh, hardworking, I'm, I'm sure. And good at PR. All right, let's hear the poem. Or at least the first, first part, anyway. My, okay. Elizabeth Blackwell, born 1821, died 1910. I lie on the hard floor... I am six years old and need to know how much I can suffer and still survive. I go days without eating. Because they tell me it's impossible, I decide to become a doctor. This way, I can never marry, never see a man naked, unless he's dead. I can get inside him, take him all apart, and bury him, never lose my name. I'm very upset about all this licentiousness. I am a prude. I'm a lesbian. I'm a hero, a pioneer. I am obsessed by sex. I am bored by it. I am the victim of a tragic love affair. I am a snotty old woman who fights with my sisters about mother's china. I buy myself a daughter who will be my only friend. I lull her to England, then Scotland, then death. I cannot go any further north. Um, so that poem is grabs a bunch of stuff without choosing what the reality is. So it might be that Elizabeth Blackwell was a lesbian. It might be that she had her heart broken by this man named Hippolyte, um, 
I probably it's pronounced blow, but in my mind it's B L O T, and I as a kid I always pronounced it as Hippolyte Blot, which just sounded like a great name to me as a kid. But Hippolyte Blow is her um, her friend and is kind to her when she's in medical school. And maybe, I mean, all the kids' books, all the kids' biographies make it sound like they fell in love, but that Blackwell decided she couldn't have both a husband and a career. Nothing in the primary source materials supports that at, at all. It It's much more sounds like she never wanted to marry and that she went into medicine partly to escape marriage, which, of course, at the time could mean to escape childbearing and the dangers that go with that. So it's so hard to tell. And Elizabeth Blackwell, being my lifelong hero and interest, it's this poem, for I think, is very much about the fact that I can never really know the answers to most questions I have about her. I, I'll never find, no one will know. Certainly I won't know. And um, you have to, you know, you just have to live with that and ask those questions Right. So you're not necessarily attributing all these qualities to her. It's just that you don't know. You just don't know. Speculations. No, they're, they're more like possibilities. Some years ago, there was a biography in the works that was going to address the possibility that Elizabeth Blackwell might have been a lesbian, whether practicing or not. But that book has never come out. I'm very curious. I, I don't know. I suppose it's a silly thing to be curious about one should probably just sort of admire the work Blackwell did and the things she accomplished. But I am a human being and I, I would like to know about her private life too. And I, I, it's hard not to mix those two things together when you've read, as I say, you know, something like 11 biographies. So let's uh, move on to Rebecca Lee Crumpler. Well, let me let me read it first, and then then we'll we'll talk. They call her the first black woman to earn a medical degree. She called herself doctress. She called herself businesswoman. She called herself being. They say first, 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 as though everyone before her lost. Rebecca Lee Crumpler, born eighteen thirty one, died eighteen ninety five. Another early woman doctor, uh, African American. And indeed, I didn't want to put words in her mouth. Crumpler, you know, she, she earned this medical degree. She, she practiced medicine. She's in every, you know, every, there, there's a whole industry around um, sort of bringing back historical women into our consciousness. And I'm, I'm not against that, you know, so you can buy a puzzle of, the early women scientists, and you can you can buy a calendar, and you can get a T-shirt, and um, and Rebecca Lee Crumpler will always be in those those commodities because she's an early successful black woman in medicine. But I found myself writing when I worked on the book, getting really uncomfortable with the idea that firstness was something to to always focus on, you know, the fact that some, in my work as a rare books librarian and, a, and the college archivist here at, at CC, Colorado College in Colorado Springs, I often have folks trying to find the first this or that connected with the college, you know, the first 
Native American woman to live on campus, something like that. And we find somebody who might fit the bill and then we're disappointed or, you know, or the researcher is disappointed to find out that they're not first because she wanted that one to be first. Mm-hmm. Who cares if the, who's, you know, like the firstness, it, it, it takes away from the people who come after. It takes away from the people who tried before and did, didn't get there. It, it's distressing when the first black woman doctor is from the late 19th century. I mean, it, that, that's a bummer. It should be someone earlier. But it's also wonderful that she did this. And it's wonderful that other black women became doctors in the decades to follow. And they shouldn't be ignored because they weren't first. Anyway, this is probably my own odd little hobby horse because of this project. Um, but thinking about firstness is something that I think it's I think it's that it's it's sort of the um, clickbait way of thinking about women in, in history just the quick uncomplicated and it and of course it really is more complicated than that yeah sort of tries to oversimplify things all right let's hear the poem one more time and then we're going to do another station announcement rebecca lee crumpler born 1831 died 1895 they call her the first black woman to earn a medical degree she called herself doctress she called herself businesswoman She called herself being. They say, first, 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 as though everyone before her lost. What I wanted to bring up next is the whole idea of credit, which we were sort of getting to before, where so many women were not given credit for the work that they did. And I'm thinking about, uh, in particular, nuclear science. We're going to fast forward a little bit here. Uh, Now, the first one in nuclear science, a woman, I think, is Marie Curie, who, of course, she's so famous. And I, I read that she was the only woman, the only person, not just a woman, the only person to win two Nobel Prizes in two different fields. So she got plenty of recognition in the end, but two others didn't. One is Lisa Meitner, who was denied sharing the Nobel Prize with Otto Hahn for her work in nuclear fission, and the other being Rosalind Franklin, uh, not in nuclear physics, but in her case, it was the DNA, the structure of DNA, and she should have sh- shared the, the uh, prize with Watson and Crick but she didn't and then she died. There are dozens of these stories. Uh, Now it's part of science work that many people work on a project and often one name gets the credit. That's, that is not so much to do with, it's just the way it works in science. But there have been these cases where women were at the forefront and they didn't get credited. Marie Curie, of course, accomplished amazing things. But it was a disappointment to me working on the book. I frequently, you know, if I, if I was talking to people about what I was working on, and I'd say, and who's your favorite historical woman scientist? And they wouldn't have a favorite. And the only person they'd be able to think of was Marie Curie. And I get that. You know, if somebody said to me, who is your favorite um, race car driver, I would not have an answer. But I, it does seem like, it, it does seem like we should know about more than Marie Curie. So Meitner and Franklin are both in the book, along with many other women who, who, for whom part of their story is nobody knows about me. Not so much 
because I mean it's hard to point at like one you can't blame one particular person you can't blame the one bad mean scientist for not putting a woman's name on papers like it's it was part of the system right it's part of the science system there's a wonderful new novel by Bonnie Garmos called Lessons in Chemistry it's fantastic and as I read it I thought oh she must be basing this character on um, Ellen uh, Swallow Richards, who who was a chemist who ended up writing a, a book of household recipes and things like that. It turns out it, it, there is no there is no connection, but there, the stories have a lot of similarities. But the character, the the woman scientist in Lessons in Chemistry, says she thinks science papers should always be anonymous. She thinks people's name when they're submitted when they're submitted at least. Yes, that the well, she even thinks even when they're published, that they should never be. Yeah, it's nuts. I mean, there's, I mean, in the book, when she says this, you know, she's crazy. She's she's lost her mind because because all of science would just die, right? Because science is built on ego. A lot it's, of things are built on ego. <laughs> yeah, everything. Right, everything really. Like how how I mean, but but if if people did science the way this character in the book does science just for the pure innocent absolute love of science and wanting to move things along and solve and and cure disease and you know yes but that's we know that's not how science works it's not how anything works as you, as you were absolutely right to point out and if people couldn't get uh, a better funding and a better position and a better lab they're not going to want to do the work you know that that's part of how science that's just how science was built um, but i do i do find it intriguing to imagine a different a different system for science where it's all anonymous and everyone just doing it out of absolute altruism right or at least at the, at the submission fa uh, phase i mean it's it's done in classical music uh, orchestral uh, auditions because there was, I, this, as the story goes, there was a woman trombonist who was rejected, even though she was the best, and she protested, and they some, somehow uh, agreed to do a, another audition behind the screen so that they couldn't see who was playing. And the original audition, she, she was rejected because her playing wasn't masculine enough. <laughs> <laughs> but then she won hands down once there was a screen up. Well, and we know, I mean, we know so much about this implicit bias in in so many areas of of society so yes yeah, so that would make sense i like your compromise we just submit the papers anonymously and that way the people who have a famous name don't necessarily just automatically get everything they do pushed through but they have to you know they have to go through the same hoops i kind of well, like and, that and also it wouldn't depend on on institutional affiliation either yep right you wouldn't have harvard or yale yep but that's, I mean, it would drive scientists up a wall because that's why they took the job at MIT, right? Was so they could, they could open, have those doors open that MIT opens for them. Well, you know what, Stuart, we're not going to solve this in, on, on your radio show. I don't. Oh, but we're so close. <laughs> I don't, I know, I know it's right. It's so close. We're so, we're almost there. All right. So let me read uh, the one about Marie Curie, 1867 to 1934. Stop comparing me to every woman scientist. Another Mad Madame Curie this, another Madame Curie that. Stop renaming women altogether. We already lose our names to marriage. 
We already receive unwanted nicknames from male colleagues who are far from collegial. Talk about toxic. Will the ticking of my machine ever, ever stop? Uh, that is that. I don't even need to reread that one because you got it. It's so I kind of didn't even want to put Curie in the book because I feel like she's kind of, you know, she, everybody knows her already. She's had so much attention. But then I realized that uh, if I didn't put Curie in the book, it would it would be so weird you know people would say well that's the one person i've heard of and she's not in there so i had so the poem had to be a little bit cheeky or ticked off or something just i i mean i i think marie curie would not want to be the only woman scientist people can name exactly exactly well let's uh, let's talk about um mary g ross because I, th I think there's a really charming story about her Oh, she's a good one, yeah. Page 75, I guess I'll, I'll read it first. I stumped the dummies on what's my line for six long questions. Quote, if war broke out tomorrow, would this product be useful? Unquote. So many secrets. The government word is classified. Is it bigger than a Cult 44? Is it as big as a tank? The audience burst into applause when they read my placard. Designs rocket missiles and satellites, Lockheed aircraft. Bennett Surf thought maybe I counted down the numbers to set the rockets off. He laughed and laughed. It was TV. No one said Native American or Indian or Cherokee. I was demure in my dark gown, dark gloves, and sparkling jewels. It was 1958. I kept my lips zipped. So Mary G. Ross, um, if you Google listeners to Stewart's show... As soon as the show's over, Google Mary G. Ross, What's My Line? So What's My Line, for those who, who are too young to know, was this old game show where you tried to guess what job someone did. And there was this panel of experts, and they'd ask questions and try to figure out what the person, the mystery person, uh, did for a living. And in Mary G. Ross's case, she was a rocket engineer. Literally, you know, sort of the, the joke that people like, yeah, he's no rocket engineer. You know, she was that. And of course, they they couldn't wrap their minds around it. I mean, the the idea that their best guess was maybe she counts ten, nine, eight, seven, you know, so that the rocket can take off once they start getting close. Yes, you can see the whole show. You can go if you Google Mary G. Ross, what's my line? YouTube has the whole program. You can watch the whole thing unfold in front of your eyes. And how she is so, she's so calm and cool, and and they are they just look like buffoons. It's it's really fun to see. That's that's really charming. <laughs> yeah, I think she might be the only Native American in your in in the book. No, there there are others. Is there another, is there another one? There are others. Oh gosh, um, you know when I was trying to figure out who should be in the book, because I had something like. I don't know, close to 200 poems altogether. There, there are two Chinese women. Yep. Chinese women in China had to go through the same obstacle course. Absolutely. Yes, they did. Susan LaFleche Picote is an Omaha uh, slash Ponca. Picote is a doctor. Bertha Parker Palin is, a, is an anthropologist. Her, she's an interesting case because she's doing anthropology on indigenous, the history of indigenous people 
and of course she herself is is an indigenous person uh, she's abenaki slash seneca um and, and bertha parker palin earlier in her career before she becomes an anthropologist worked for the circus as a pretend indian person <laughs> you know like like with red paint on her face to do the pocahontas dance there's so many stories here that are really should be movies. I can't write a screenplay and produce a movie, but I can write a poem. Let's let's get these. Let's get Hollywood to pay attention. I agree with you. All right, let, let's go back a tiny bit in time to Nettie Stevens. Okay. Things that won't decide the sexual organs of your child: the season, the temperature, the spice in your food, the direction your mother's head pointed at your conception the positions of your parents in sleep, the number of orgasms, the number of the day of the month, the face of the moon, the way the wind is blowing. What will decide? Chance and chromosomes. Is it more or less magical to realize it's out of your control? If you want it to be magical, ask yourself, why? I love that you picked that one. That one never gets any love. Aw. Well, I think the reason I picked it is because, well, she's the discoverer of sex chromosomes, but... Well, that's not the reason. The reason is that she's kind of making fun of superstition. And of course, science is supposed to be at its best an antidote to superstition. It's re the replacement of superstition with actual knowledge, empirical knowledge. Theoretically. Theoretically. I mean, you know, it's, it, I'm not sure it always works, but that's, that's the goal. One of the goals anyway. And so here you have a woman you know, speaking to that. It's the best method we've got. Yeah. All those things in the in the poem on in the list part of the poem are are actual written down bs ways that people are told well if you want to have a girl make sure your head is pointing east or or whatever all kinds of bad information out there right yeah so this is a perfect one of why is science valuable why do we why do we respect science it's a it's a whole way of doing things that is different than just making stuff up and spreading bad information around and then that idea that that people like the idea that there could be something magical involved i suppose if this poem were longer there could be another question about if you want it to be not magical why is that why do i like the fact that there isn't actually magic involved or am i disappointed about that am i sort of sad that there's no magic in the world or that what magic there is is different from you know harry potter and wizard of oz but but more the amazing things nature does a, a lack of magic but also lack of control yes this idea that i mean really you know that doesn't make any sense that you could pick we know we know there's a 50 50 chance and then there are other things you can get to of course you can get other combinations genetics is so mathy that i i feel like i can wrap my head around it a bit more all right i think we have time maybe for one more so moving to almost contemporary times uh or actually actually it's overlapping just uh someone who died only 20 one years ago, Helen Rodriguez Trias. Here's your poem about her. Why are you in this class, the teacher asked. Because my last names are Rodriguez and Trias, and my parents are Puerto Rican. 
because my first name is Helen and I'm a girl. I recited my poem like a boss. Over and over, I'd had to prove myself to white women. Meanwhile, over and over, those women had to prove themselves to men, saying, we can make our own decisions about having children. Meanwhile, over and over, my patients had to prove the same, but the opposite. Rodriguez Trias is someone I, I had not known about until I started working on the book. Indeed, she was put into a sort of remedial class as a, as a kid for no reason other than uh, the fact that she was not, not white and, and a girl. But she, she was able to, by sheer force of will, get herself really well educated. It's one of these times when, you know, I, I mean, yes, that's, that's great. But what about all the other, all the other kids who, who would have, who could have done more than what the world sort of let them. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so as you can probably tell, as anyone listening can probably tell from that poem, there were women of color in the 1960s being sterilized without their permission or knowledge. And meanwhile, there are women fighting for the right to have abortions. We have not come a long way, baby. And Trias is fighting hard for women in her community to have the right to have children. And and it's a battle that I think we hear less about than than the white women's pro-choice fight of, of that period. And then she went on to become the first Latina president of the American Public Health Association. Yes, she's a really amazing lady. I think, is she, she died not, not long ago, I think. 2001. Oh, well, 20 years. 20. Yeah, but that's, that's really within most people's memories at this point. Yeah, yeah, people could, people living now could have seen her on the news. Exactly, okay. All right, so let's hear the poem one more time. Helen Rodriguez Trias, born 1929, died 2001. Why are you in this class? The teacher asked. Because my last names are Rodriguez and Trias, and my parents are Puerto Rican. Because my first name is Helen and I'm a girl. I recited my poem like a boss. Over and over I've had to prove myself to white women. Meanwhile, over and over, those women have had to prove themselves to men, saying, we can make our own decisions about having children. Meanwhile, over and over, my patients have to prove the same, but the opposite. Yeah, and then that's one thing that we haven't talked about so much, and we're almost out of time, so we probably won't talk about it very much, but just the kind of range of emotions about being excluded and having to fight so hard, the disappointment, rage, uh, on the one hand, sometimes maybe some acceptance, you know, in this case, uh, feeling angry toward uh, people of a different race, uh, the dominant race rather than the dominant gender necessarily. So it's, uh, it's all there in, in your book. And I should say that I, you know, with, with Rodriguez Tria, when I take on these these personae, I, I don't know how she felt about white women. I I believe she actually worked with a lot of women's groups and and might not have 
ever expressed such thoughts as that poem expresses. That's why in general I tried to choose women for the book that were no longer living. So they couldn't speak for themselves so I could make up what they might say. If you're still alive, then speak for yourself. But these were my my what my imagination where my imagination took me and I and as you know I am a white woman myself and I really did not want the book to to only um, be about white women obviously but it was a it was an uncomfortable and tricky place for me to start speaking for someone else and it was hard to figure out like how much do I how much can I can I do that all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Uh, Jesse Randall, a poet and uh, the author of Mathematics for Ladies, Poems on Women in Science. Thank you so much. I, you're welcome. I want to say one more thing. You said you're talking about the anger and the emotion in these poems. There are a couple of scientists whose poems we didn't read who had a lot of fun. There, there are some women in science, like Honor Fell, the biologist who apparently her labs were full of laughter and joy. Yeah, I don't want to give a misimpression either. I mean, my the description I actually wrote out is that it was a mix of reverence and vicarious irreverence, outrage and bemusement, anger and equanimity, pride and cheerful self-effacement. <laughs> yes, that that's that's it. And I, although I am certainly plenty full of outrage about many a thing, I I do also. Um, appreciate fun and and even try to have some sometimes. Right, well, thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Stuart. And this was a, this was great. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website lccommunityradio.org and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.